everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we'll be talking about cannabis policy with Christy Smith. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. So why are we even talking about cannabis in 2023? Three, why why do we still have fe- federal regulations against cannabis of all things? It seems like there are much more bigger uh, stones to throw at this point. Sure, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think we're still in this space because it's never been politically popular to support cannabis legislation, um, especially at the federal level. And I wanna point out that being supportive of legislation is not the same as condoning or supporting the use of cannabis, but rather uh, what are the what is the best approach to this? And I think aside from the political uh, complications, the fact that cannabis remains scheduled federally as a schedule one substance means that our ability to study the product is severely restricted and so, when crafting smart legislation that is attuned to issues of driving under the influence and things like that, you know, we, we don't have the scientific knowledge that we need to fully reconsider this. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, a complex situation that um, I think we're going in the right direction, uh, but something that, you know, is certainly taking a really long time to, to fully evolve. Yeah, it just seems strange to me because I live out here in California. I can walk out my door, walk two blocks and go legally purchase marijuana. Of course, I have to uh, pay in cash still, which doesn't make any sense to me. But uh, nevertheless, it's pretty easy. Now, I was in St. Louis, Missouri uh, a few months ago, and I was shocked to see they have cannabis dispensaries in the heart of rig country. So... It just seems odd that, you know, on at the state level, it's, you know, fairly easy. I don't know how many states have now legalized it, but it, but it's more than a few. And yet there seems to be absolutely no traction at the federal level. So uh, with regard to the number of states that have legalized, 24 states as of uh, today, present day, have fully legalized uh, cannabis. There are a variety of ways, uh, recreational uh, or medicinal or a combination of both. Um, And your issue, your um, concern about talking about the cash-based nature of the business is part of pending legislation to address that um, because having a cash-based market is inherently more dangerous for individuals that are 
you know, going into the dispensary, they're abiding by the law. Uh, it's in incredibly dangerous for the dispensaries. I know in Washington state, um, some dispensaries were purposely target targeted, burglarized. Um, so that is part of uh, recently introduced and pending uh, banking legislation, largely to address the cash issue. Um, but again, you know, another part of this really complex situation. I mean, what is what is the status of any effort to legalize it at the federal level at this point? It's complex. Uh, there, you know, there was information that was put out about the potential of it being uh, moved to a Schedule Three substance. Um, and again, the Safer Banking Act that was introduced, uh, the HOPE Act that was introduced, tackle various pieces of that. Um, but again, there's concern among individuals that um, if it is reduced to a Schedule Three substance, the federal government will not continue to pursue full legalization, full descheduling. Schedule Three is not going to resolve um, the illicit market. Uh, so Again, you know, very complicated from the pending legislation, you know, as of the previous legislative cycle, there were 159 various bills uh, that were, you know, proposed to tackle the issue of medicinal marijuana not being accessible for veterans. Um, you know, the complexities between having medicinal access, but not recreational access, and then in other jurisdictions having it decriminalized. So a lot of legislation that has been proposed is being examined. Um, also, you know, the consideration of potentially scheduled, uh, being a Schedule 3 substance, but this is a very slow shift that is happening right now. Now, looking at your article, I think from last year in R Street, and you mentioned more than 90% of Americans now support legal adult use of medical or recreational cannabis. I mean, that's astounding. Yes, and there's currently bipartisan support for this as well. Um, so in addition to the vast majority of the voting population being supportive of uh, federal legalization, uh, in addition to it being bipartisan, um, we're also seeing a growing number of law enforcement, uh, two thirds of law enforcement officers being supportive of uh, decriminalization and or legalization uh, to make their jobs safer, to make communities safer, to shift their priorities to more pressing uh, violent crime issues. And, you know, again, I, I've been out in California, so I've gotten to see, you know, firsthand what the impact of legalized marijuana is. And I think the only thing that that I notice more is that you know, if you're walking down an alley, you're you're more likely not to smell marijuana. But it's not like you never smelled marijuana anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And that that's part of what federal regulation can tackle. Um, you know, when you're walking down that same alley, you're not typically seeing somebody with an open container because it is that's part of the federal legislation. And so that's why we really look to the federal government to set these standards, because that is how you get, you know, how you reduce that from happening. Um, among the law enforcement officers that are supportive of legalization, they express the same concern. You know, I'm, I'm fine with it being legal, but I don't want to smell it, you know, on, on the playground where I'm taking my kids to play. And that's where federal, federal uh, regulation comes in, similar to open container laws that says, yeah, this is legal, but here are the places, the times, the circumstances with which you can, you know, ingest the, the product. So where do you see this going? I mean, obviously, 90% of the public is is now on the side of 
some form of legalization, we're going to be headed, uh, you know, even as slow as the federal government moves. At some point, the federal government's going to catch up to that because they're going to just have bigger priorities. Absolutely. I mean, it, it is coming. It's absolutely coming. Um, and as you know, I mentioned with the, the Schedule 3 uh, potential, again, some of the, the uh, people that are more firmly advocating for legalization are also calling on President Biden um, to fulfill his campaign promise of legalizing it. So I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure that's coming not only from the voting population, but it's also coming from within lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to really get this, get some traction and move this forward in a way that is able to safely uh, regulate the product, have potentially the FDA be involved, address marketing. Um, you know, as we see more of these states legalized and decriminalized, the federal government is going to have to get involved um, because states are doing it um, in very different ways, some more effectively than others. Uh, and again, you know, the issue of traffic safety, you know, that cannot be fully addressed until we actually have the ability to study the prod product and make sure that, you know, we know truly when somebody is driving under the influence of cannabis, as opposed to somebody being pulled over for, you know, a, an alcohol related DUI, but they have the blood test and cannabis shows up in it, and then they're upcharged, you know, so they're just a really, um, you know, the, the fast pace with which the individual states have taken their own legislative action, the support of the voting population, the bipartisan nature of interest in this legislation, um, it, it, it is going to move forward. It's just a matter of what that actually looks like and whether or not it starts with banking regulations changing, if that is, you know, the foray into this, um, and also other legislation that looks to automatically expunge cannabis records as well. That's putting pressure on the federal government too. One of the concerns I've had about the way California did it is that a lot of local jurisdictions saw this as a cash cow. And so they put taxation on it, but they didn't really consider the fact that uh, they needed to allow the legal product to take market hold first. And so what's happened is that because of the taxation, they, they've priced a lot of the mom and pop uh, dispensaries out of business. And so it's either going to become a big business where only the deep pockets are able to do it, or there's still a pretty uh, active black market because, um, you know, you can get the product without the regulation. Absolutely. Yeah. Disenfranchisement of small business owners is a key piece of this um, access to licensing. Um, but the bigger picture, as you pointed out, is, you know, we can't disrupt an illicit market if you're not providing a product that's not only as good or better than what is available on the street, but that's also not it's it has to be priced more competitively or else even in states where they have seen legalization people will continue to use those illicit resources that they had used before because it's less expensive. They feel that the product is, is more in line with what, they, what they're used to. And so from a you know, financial standpoint, it, it doesn't make sense for somebody to engage in the legal market until those price points, those taxation issues, and those licensing issues are sufficiently addressed. Yeah, one difference, I think, between uh, cannabis and other drugs is that for the most part, you know, you're not going to get a product that's unsafe in the black market. 
Um, you know, whereas there's a real problem if you're getting other forms of drugs that you don't know what it's cut with. Uh, it, you know, a lot of times people are overdosing because uh, the drugs, uh, they just don't know what they're getting. Um, that's not a problem. The one thing I've noticed, I think, is that the legal stuff is a lot more potent than uh, the stuff you get on the black market. Um, but, you know, that's the only real difference I've seen. And the so the federal regulation could really do a better job at not only letting people know what product they're getting, but what strain, what potency. Um, you know, products are labeled, but because they're not sufficiently vetted, you know, you may, as a consumer, may be in, interested in a lower potency product, and it may be told to you that it's lower potency, but it's not, you know, and similarly with alcohol, you know, you know what you're getting, you know what percent of alcohol by volume is associated with that, um, but that's where the federal regulation could really um, step in and make sure that consumers are getting the product that they are anticipating. Um, you know, whether there's different strains, some that, you know, are more sleep inducing, some that are more energy inducing. And you certainly, you know, if you're striving for one, you don't want to get the other. And that's where we need um, not only the regulation of the product, but it has to be packaged appropriately. It has to be marketed appropriately. You know, that is all part of this bigger package of consumers knowing what they're getting um, so that, you know, they're, they're not having unintended consequences from consuming the product. What do you see as some of the big risks at this point involved uh, with prohibition? The continued exacerbation of police community relationships. Uh, I'm in Pennsylvania. Uh, we're going through another election cycle. There's the potential of stop and frisk to be reinitiated in the city. Stop and frisk has, has been a huge issue uh, for police community relationships, particularly in communities of color. Um, and so, you know, if we do not, if we do not move towards legalization, if we continue to flood our um, communities, our impoverished communities, communities of color, if we continue to emphasize low-level marijuana enforcement, we continue to disenfranchise entire communities from the police officers that are attempting to serve them. And those relationships are just a catalyst for bad things to happen in those communities. So I think this is just a huge opportunity to restore legitimacy in policing, to restore community relationships with policing so that they can collaboratively work together to resolve more significant crime. Yeah, and along those lines, one of the big impacts of illegalization is the fact that uh, there is huge racial disparity in terms of who gets caught up in the web. Um, you know, every single survey will show that uh, you know, blacks and whites use drugs around the same level uh, as each other. Um, you know, you might think that, uh, you know, college students are probably the most likely uh, subgroup uh, to, to use cannabis. And yet, who's getting caught, uh, you know, by law enforcement? people of color they get caught they get prosecuted they get into the system and then once they get into the system it becomes this entry point uh for the carceral system absolutely and 
Interestingly, even in states that have legalized, African-Americans are still arrested four times more than their white counterparts. So legalization is definitely uh, a key piece of this. But that's, you know, the racial disparities that are perpetrated not only through cannabis enforcement, but across the entire criminal justice system um, are continue to be a concern. Now, you mentioned um, the fact that marijuana is a schedule one drug and there are efforts to make it a schedule three drug. What does that mean? Why is it so important not to have it be a schedule one drug? because the restriction on Schedule One substances um, doesn't allow us to fully study the, uh, the impacts of impairment. Um, it doesn't let us to really study anything that is sufficient to address the issue of driving under the influence, uh, you know, the, the impact on pregnant people who are ingesting. So moving it down to a Schedule Three, first of all, is a little bit more in line with the science um, because the schedules are supposed to be based on medical utility, likelihood of overdose and likelihood of addiction. Um, and so, you know, having it, having cannabis or marijuana be a schedule one substance is just simply incongruent with the scientific base that we already know. Uh, moving it down to schedule three would allow us to more sufficiently study it, but it would also restrict it uh, within medical communities. Um, and and not get in the way of existing dispensaries, but still not allow for, you know, the full availability for the voting population that wants the product as a, as a legalized substance. Now, one of the concerns I heard um, when, when uh, California was going to legalize it was the issue of smoking. But what I've noticed uh, is that by legalizing it, you actually make it easier to consume in other ways other than just smoking it. Yeah, correct. And that's important from a health perspective. Um, you know, there are people who may be interested in marijuana, but who don't are not interested in smoking and the collateral damage that that can, can bring to the respiratory system. So having, uh, having descheduling and, and looking at the different types of products, edibles, for example, you know, other ways, uh, tinctures and sublinguals and pills, you know, there are a variety of different ways with which the product can be consumed and and can be done in a way that's less harmful to one's individual health. And so having that, you know, descheduling allows us to pursue those different ways that candidly are already out there. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's not hard to find uh, in, in the states that have legalized, but even in states that have only legalized medicinal marijuana, uh, the products are still widely available. They're even if they're one-offs from you know traditional cannabis, there are still products that are largely available in the community. Um, and do we know anything about the health impacts of consuming marijuana other than through smoking? Uh, off the top of my head, I mean, not, it's obviously not recommended for um, individuals that are pregnant, and it can impair brain development. So that's part of the conversation about what the age should be for legalized recreational use. Um, it's also a concern within medicinal use because there are young children that have seizure disorders for which they have sought the use of, of marijuana or cannabis products. Um, but the concern is that the earlier one begins to ingest marijuana, 
uh, the, the more pervasive some of these neurobiological development processes may be impacted. And true, you know, they may not have, you know, horrible, you know, life circumstances as a result of it, but they also may not be able to really realize their full potential because some of those neural pathways have been impacted by having having marijuana in their brain. Um, and, you know, I've read mostly that marijuana is not addictive, but is that actually true? How much do we know about that? Yeah, so there's conflicting information that comes out about that all the time. Um, marijuana use disorder is an actual diagnosis uh, disorder within the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, whether or not that's a valid diagnosis, I think remains to be seen. Um, you know, there are, again, research on both sides that says, nope, not addictive. And then research on the other side that says, oh yeah, for this small portion of the ingesting community, they are addicted to this product. So I, I think having it descheduled or scheduled down at three would really allow us to more sufficiently study that. I think the big thing to point out though is that no one has ever overdosed from marijuana. Um, so, you know, we do need to look at the addictive potential, but we know that nobody has ever died um, just solely from ingesting marijuana. And at the same time, you know, we have legal products such as alcohol and tobacco that we know are addictive and, and do cause a substance use disorder. Um, so it's not like that's been a barrier to them being available. Exactly. Um, so September is National Recovery Month, and I, I recently uh, wrote a piece on this, and it specifically points out that our legal substances are the primary substances that are responsible for uh, preventable illness and early death. Um, nicotine and tobacco are number one. Smoking is the number one uh, way that you know people meet it, uh, an early death, and alcohol is the fourth leading cause uh, of death. Um, alcohol is also the substance that is most highly associated with crime, violence, and death. Uh, so, you know, when you, you, I mean, it's comparing apples and oranges, but when you look at the impact that these legal substances are having, not only on us as individuals, but in the community as well through, you know, through driving under the influence and things like that, by comparison, cannabis appears to not be of that same magnitude. Well, it, it, it's kind of interesting. I remember watching, you know, the the old uh, scare uh, flick, you know, Reefer Madness, and 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 the fact that, you know, it depicted all these people going on rampages after after consuming marijuana, and it seemed to me, you know, and most people that knew anyone on uh, who ever used marijuana. The opposite was true, right? They're, they're going to lie down on their couch and maybe eat too much. Yeah, I think that was probably one of the biggest pieces of propaganda that came out of, with cannabis prohibition. Um, and as a kid of the 1980s and 90s, I vividly remember the commercials where, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, and it's an egg in a frying pan. And again, you know, not condoning or, or it supporting the use of the substances, but when the messages like that are so incongruent with the research or general knowledge within the community, they have the opposite impact, you know, where people say, well, that's nonsense. Like that's absolute nonsense. And so the validity of that argument really takes a hit 
as does the legitimacy of the law. And when we have laws on the books that people do not believe are necessary and or warranted, they're less likely to abide by those laws. And I apologize, I dove right into the topic because I'm so fascinated by it, but I, I didn't ask your background and how you came about doing this. Sure. So um, I work at the R Street Institute, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan um, think tank that is based out of Washington, D.C. I'm a senior fellow in criminal justice and civil liberties, uh, where we tackle public policy issues. Um, I specifically focus on uh, probation, parole, community supervision, um, which this cannabis uh, legislation is undoubtedly a huge part of because of um, the use, the over-enforcement of low-level minor simple possession uh, marijuana charges that has swept people into the system in mass. Um, prior to joining R Street, I had a more than two decades career in academia. So that's my research background, but also as, as an adult probation and parole officer in suburban, uh, the suburban Philadelphia area. So I come at this from the practitioner hat where you know, it just is not a, a great use of resources to supervise individuals for simple possession of marijuana. Um, and also from the research background where the legislation is just completely inconsistent with the science. Um, but also, you know, we have to we have to fully recognize the racial uh, way in which the legislation came about. So that's how I got interested in working in the cannabis space. Yeah. And. You know, that that's generally my view as well. Um, you know, I think um, I think the problem that that we have now is that we've decided for whatever reason that that we need to treat uh, drug use as a criminal problem and rather than a health problem. Um, you know, and I think cannabis is the easiest call, right, because because it really is, in most ways, uh, at least from a legal standpoint, innocuous. Now, whether you're going to argue in, uh, that there are some health benefits, hey, look, you know, uh, won't dispute it. But guess what? You know, if I eat too many donuts tonight, uh, I, I'm going to go into a diabetic shock. And, uh, and that's a health uh, problem, too. But nobody's going to arrest me for it. Right. And and also consider the difficult position that it puts law enforcement officers in as well. Um, when you treat things that are public health issues, aside from um, drug use, when you criminalize poverty, when you criminalize homelessness, you're inherently increasing the interactions that police are having with individuals in the community. And that really ups the ante for those interactions to, you know, escalate to situations of violence, again, because the law itself is not is not respected by individuals. And so that police contact is unwarranted. And so legalization not only um, can allow us to treat this more as a public health issue, we can emphasize treatment, we can emphasize education, we can emphasize prevention, but keeping this within the purview of the criminal justice system is just simply not only a diversion uh, from more high priority issues, but it's clogging our entire system. I mean, we, we've had like a 700% increase in our prison populations, 436% increase in individuals that are held in pretrial detention. You know, we have really fully invested in prohibition and law enforcement resources to enforce that, but we've not done the same uh, in increasing the resources 
to process people through the criminal justice system. And so that's delaying or, or completely deflecting justice for individuals um, with higher priority crime issues. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because um, you know, even uh, 10 years ago, you talked to police officers out here and a lot of them recognized, um, you know, that, that marijuana laws were a waste of time and many weren't even gonna go for it. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, you mentioned uh, stop and frisk and the fact that in a few states, including yours, um, you know, that issue is coming back again and, and stop and frisk, you know, marijuana law is very helpful for stop and frisk because it gives you a reason to search people. Yeah, and there's a there is a concern um, among law enforcement that the inability to use uh, the scent or odor of marijuana as the vehicle for which they're able to discover, you know, firearms or, or more crime or, you know, other drugs that a person might have on them. I think that that is a, a legitimate concern, um, you know, and one that, that can't be ignored. I mean, it, it may inherently make the it may make it more difficult for officers to focus or find the the weapons that they are looking for, but it's doing so at the cost of those community relationships. It's doing so at the compromising of community safety for law enforcement officers and for those individuals. And it continues, you know, potentially to contribute to these, you know, racial and economic disparities that are already so pervasive in many of our major cities. Yeah, although, you know, my reaction is that, um, Marijuana scent was often a false flag that uh, that police officers said, oh, I, I, I smell marijuana. Uh, I had to search the car and I found all these other things, but I didn't find any marijuana. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, but the civil liberties hat that I that I wear as well as the criminal justice one, you know, really points to that. That's a Fourth Amendment issue. And while it may, in fact, be more difficult for law enforcement officers, as I pointed out, it's more fundamentally fair to preserve our civil liberties and to make sure that if if searches are occurring, that they're doing so in line with the Fourth Amendment and that they're not done based on, you know, this false uh, you know, false notion that there was this odor of marijuana. Um, so if people want to learn more about the work that our street is doing and that you're doing, how can they go about doing that? Rstreet.org. So the letter R, rstreet.org. Um, you can find the policy paper that I published on this. You can find a testimony that we have supported and submitted um, with legislation. Uh, there are constantly updates on our website that really speak to uh, the cannabis space. Um, but also you really can't talk about cannabis legislation without also talking about clean slate record stealing. Um, because if we're moving forward with cannabis legalization, we absolutely have to do something about the millions of individuals, the vast majority of whom were only charged with simple possession. So not large, not large scale distribution or anything like that. Um, we really need to take a look at how we're going to, you know, repair that harm as well so that those individuals with cannabis records are able to have those records sealed. They're able to regain their access to stable housing, employment, education, and the resources that they need to remain law-abiding. Great. Well, thanks, Christy, for coming on and uh, sharing a very interesting issue. Yes, thank you for having me.
This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Christy Smith from R Street. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.